0: Hello and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this episode is called The Decline of the Crusaders, episode 11, The Battle of Hattin. In the last episode, we heard about the divisions and quarrels between the Crusaders, which were made worse by the weak leadership of the new King of Jerusalem, Guy of Lusignan. Meanwhile, Saladin was amassing the largest army Islam had put into the field since the Seljuk Turkish Empire had been at its height a century before and had defeated the Byzantines at the Battle of Manzikert. It was now only a matter of time before Saladin launched a major offensive against the Crusaders, and the clock was ticking down towards one of the greatest battles in the Middle Ages, the Battle of Hattin in 1187. As before, I'll read extracts from my adapted version of Sir Stephen Runciman's wonderful History of the Crusades. So let's go, hope you enjoy it. At the beginning of 1187, it looked as if there might be a civil war between the Crusaders. For the King of Jerusalem, Guy of Lusignan, who was the nominal head of all the Crusader states, was facing an open rebellion by the other two Crusader states, the Principality of Antioch and the County of Tripoli. Bohemond of Antioch had renewed his truce with Saladin. Raymond of Tripoli also made a truce for his county and extended it to cover his wife's principality of Galilee. At the same time, he secured Saladin's sympathy and promise of support in his aim of making himself king. Wise though Raymond's policy may have seemed to him, it was deeply treasonable. The king of Jerusalem, Guy, summoned his remaining vassals and marched north to Nazareth to reduce Galilee to submission before Saladin's attack should begin. Civil war was only averted by the intervention of Balian of Ebelin, who, when he arrived at the camp, roughly asked the king what he was doing. When Guy replied that he was going to besiege Tiberias, Balian pointed out the folly of his plan, for Raymond, with the Saracen help on which he could call, would have stronger forces than the king. Balian asked that instead he should be sent to talk to Raymond. But his appeal for unity had no effect on the Count, who would only submit to Guy if Beirut was returned to him. It was a price that Guy thought too dear, but as news came of Saladin's preparations for the coming war, Balian pleaded once again with the King for reconciliation with Raymond. "'You have lost your best knight in Baldwin of Ramla,' he said, mentioning his brother with pride. "'If you lose the help and counsel of Count Raymond too, you are finished.' Guy, usually ready to agree with anyone that spoke firmly to him, allowed Balian to go on a new embassy to Tiberius, together with Josias, Archbishop of Tyre, and the Grand Masters of the hospital and the temple. It was essential that the latter, Raymond's bitterest enemy, should be involved in any peaceful settlement that was made. The delegates, escorted by ten hospital a knights, set out from Jerusalem on the 29th of April 1187. They spent that night at Balian's castle of Nablus. There Balian had business to transact, so he told the grand masters and the archbishop to ride ahead. He would pass the day there and overtake them on the morrow at the castle of Lafeve in the plain of Estrelon. Late in the evening of the 30th, Balian left Nablus with a few attendants intending to ride on through the night but he suddenly remembered that it was the eve of St Philip and St James so he turned aside from the road at Sebastia the Samaria of the Ancients and knocked at the door of the bishop's palace. The bishop was awakened and admitted him and they sat talking through the night until the dawn came and mass could be celebrated. He then said goodbye to his host and rode on his way. On the thirty of April, while Balian was discussing business with his stewards and the Grand Masters were riding over the hills to La Feve, Count Raymond at Tiberias received an envoy from the Muslims at Banyas. Saladin's young son, Al Afdal, Commandant of the camp there was told by his father to send a reconnaissance into Palestine and very correctly asked permission for his men to traverse the Count's territory in Galilee. Raymond, bound by his private treaty with Saladin, could not refuse the embarrassing request. He only stipulated that the Muslims should cross the frontier after daybreak on the morrow and return before dark, and that they should do no harm to any town or village in the land. He then sent messengers round all his fief to tell the people to keep themselves and their flocks within the walls for the whole day and to have no fear at that moment he heard of the coming of the delegation from Jerusalem another message was sent out to give it the same warning early in the morning on 1st of may raymond watched from his castle the emir kukburi and seven thousand mamelukes ride by about the middle of that morning balian and his company arrived at la Fevre. from afar they had seen the tents of the templars dressed below the walls but when they drew near they found that they were empty and in the castle itself there was silence Balian's groom, Ernoul entered the building and wandered from room to room. There was no one there, except two soldiers lying in one of the upper galleries, sick to death and unable to speak. What had happened? Balian was perplexed and worried. He waited for an hour or two, uncertain what to do, then set out again along the road to Nazareth. Suddenly, a Templar knight galloped up, dishevelled and bleeding, shouting out of a great disaster. At the same hour, Raymond, at Tiberius, watched the Mamelukes ride home. They seemed to have kept to the pact. It was well before nightfall, and they had not harmed a building in the province. But then he noticed that on the lances of the vanguard were fixed the heads of Templar knights. The answer to this mystery was that Raymond's message had reached the Grand Masters at La Feve on the evening of the 30th, though Roger of the Hospital protested Gerard of the Temple at once summoned the Templars from the neighbourhood to join him there. The Marshal of the Temple, James of Maillie, was at the village of Cacoon, five miles away, with 90 knights. He came and spent the night before the castle. Next morning, the cavalcade rode to Nazareth, where 40 secular knights joined them. The Archbishop of Tyre remained there, but Gerard paused only to shout to the townsfolk that there would be a battle soon, and they must come to collect the booty. As the knights passed over the hill behind Nazareth, they found the Mamelukes watering their horses at the springs of Croissant in the valley below. At the sight of such numbers, about 7,000, both Roger and James of Mailly advised retreat, But Gerard was furious. He turned scornfully from his fellow grandmaster and taunted his marshal, "You love your blonde head too well to want to lose it," he said. James proudly replied. I shall die in battle like a brave man. It is you that will flee as a traitor. Fired by Gerard's insults, the company charged down into the Mamelukes. It was a massacre rather than a battle. James's blond head was one of the last to fall, and the grand master of the hospital fell by his side. Very soon, Every Templar knight was slain, except three, of whom Gerard was one. They galloped back, wounded, to Nazareth. It was one of them that rode on to find Balian. The secular knights were taken alive. Some of the greedy citizens of Nazareth had gone out to the battlefield to find the booty that Gerard had promised. They were rounded up and taken off as prisoners by the Mamelukes.' After sending to his wife to urge her to collect all her knights, Balian joined Gerard at Nazareth and tried to persuade him to come to Tiberias. Gerard pleaded that his wounds were too bad, so Balian went on with the archbishop. They found Raymond aghast at the tragedy, for which he felt that his policy had been to blame. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at namourswellbeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. and he was right. He gladly accepted Balian's mediation and annulled his treaty with Saladin. He then rode south to Jerusalem and made his submission to the king. Guy, for all his faults, was not vindictive. He gave Raymond a cordial welcome and even apologised for the manner of his coronation. At last the kingdom seemed to be united again. It was as well, for Saladin was known to be gathering a great army across the frontier in the Haran, In May, while the host was assembling from all over his empire, he had made a journey down the road towards Mecca to escort a pilgrim caravan in which his sister and her son were returning from the Holy City to be sure that Reynald of Châtillon would not try another of his bandit raids. Meanwhile, troops poured in from Aleppo and Mosul and Mardin until his army was the largest that he had ever commanded. Across the Jordan, King Guy of Jerusalem summoned all his tenants-in-chief, and their tenants, to bring their men to meet him at Acre, the orders of the hospital and the temple, eager to avenge the massacre at Cresson, brought all their available knights, leaving only small garrisons to defend the castles under their care. The Templars gave further aid in handing to the King their share of the money sent recently to them by King Henry II of England in expiation of his murder of Thomas Becket. They had been told to bank it against the Crusade that Henry had sworn to undertake, but the present need was too urgent. The soldiers that it served to equip carried them with them, a banner with Henry's arms on it. Moved by an appeal from Raymond and Balian, Bohemond of Antioch promised a contingent under Baldwin of Ebelin and sent his own son, Raymond, to join the Count of Tripoli, who was his godfather. By the end of June, 1,200 fully-armed knights, a large number of light native cavalry, half-caste turcopoles and nearly 10,000 infantrymen were gathered at the camp before Acre. The patriarch Heraclius was asked to come with the true cross, but he said that he was unwell and entrusted the relic to the prior of the Holy Sepulchre to give to the Bishop of Acre. He preferred, his enemies said, to remain with his beloved Pashia, his mistress who was the wife of a draper and with whom he had become infatuated. On Friday the 26th of June, Saladin reviewed his troops at Ashterra in the Haran. He himself commanded, the centre, his nephew Takiedin the right wing and Kukburi the left. The army marched out in battle formation to Kisfin and on to the southern tip of the Sea of Galilee. There he waited for five days, while his scouts collected information about the Christian forces. On the 1st of July he crossed the Jordan at Sanabra, and on the 2nd he encamped with half his army at Kafra Sept in the hills five miles west of the lake, while his other troops attacked Tiberius, The town fell into their hands after an hour of fighting. Raymond and his stepsons were with the king's army, but the Countess Esquiva, after sending a messenger to tell her husband what was happening, held out with her small garrison in the castle. When news came that Saladin had crossed the Jordan, King Guy of Jerusalem held council with his barons at Acre. Count Raymond spoke first. He pointed out that in tremendous summer heat, the army that had tact was at a disadvantage. Their own strategy should be purely defensive. With the Crusader army undefeated, Saladin would not be able to maintain his great forces for long in the parched country. After a while, he would have to retire. In the meantime, the reinforcements from Antioch would arrive. Most of the knights inclined to follow this argument. But both Reynald of Châtillon and the Grand Master Gerard accused Raymond of being a Coward and having sold out to the Muslims. King Guy was always convinced by the last person who spoke and gave orders for the army. To move out towards Tiberias on the afternoon of the second of July, the Crusaders encamped at Sephoria. It was an excellent sight for a camp with ample water and good pasturage for the horses. Were they to remain there as they had remained by the pools of Goliath four years before, Saladin would never have risked attacking them. Their army was nearly as large as his own, and they had the advantage of the terrain. But that evening, the messenger from the Countess of Tripoli arrived once again Guy held a council of war in his tent. The chivalry of the knights was moved to think of the gallant lady holding out desperately by the lake. Her sons, with tears in their eyes, begged that their mother should be rescued. Others followed to support their plea. Then Raymond rose. He repeated the speech that he had made at Acre, but with more desperate emphasis. He showed the folly of leaving the present strong position, and making a hazardous march in the July heat over the barren hillside tiberius was his city he said and its defender his wife but he would rather tiberius and all within it were lost than the kingdom was lost his words carried conviction the council broke up at midnight resolved to stay at sephoria when the barons had retired to their quarters the grand master of the temple crept back to the royal tent Sire, he said, are you going to trust a traitor? It was shameful to let a city be lost that was only six leagues away. The Templars, he declared, would sooner abandon their order than abandon their chance of vengeance against the Muslims. Guy's indecisiveness was now to be the Crusader's undoing. Only an hour before, he had been persuaded by Raymond not to attack, but now he changed his mind and let Gerard convince him to attack. He sent his heralds through the camp to announce that the army would march at dawn for Tiberius. The best road from Sephoria to Tiberias went slightly north of east across the Galilean hills and came down to the lake a mile north of the town. The alternative road ran to the bridge at Sanabra, where a branch followed the shore of the lake northward. Saladin's camp at Kafra Sept lay across the Sanabra road, by which he had come from over the river. It's possible that traitors from the Christian camp went to tell him that Guy was moving out from Sephoria along the northern road. He therefore led his army for some five miles across the hills to Hattin, where the road began to descend towards the lake. It was a village with broad pastures and abundant water. He was joined there by most of his troops from Tiberias, where only those needed to blockade the castle remained. The morning of Friday the 3rd of July was hot and airless as the Christian army left the green gardens of Sephoria to march over the treeless hills, Raymond of Tripoli, as Lord of the Fief, had the right, by feudal custom, to command the vanguard of the army. The king commanded the centre, and Renald, with the orders and Balian of Ibelin, brought up the rear. There was no water along the road. Soon men and horses alike were suffering bitterly from the thirst. Their agony slowed up the pace of the march. Muslim skirmishers continuously attacked both the vanguard and the rearguard, pouring arrows into their midst and riding away before any counter-attack could be made. By the afternoon, the crusaders had reached the plateau immediately above Hattin. Ahead of them, a rocky hill with two summits rose about a 100 feet, and beyond it the ground fell steeply to the village and onto the lake. It was called the Horns of Hattin. The Templars sent to the king to say that they could go no further that day. Some of the barons begged him to order the army to press on and fight its way through to the lake lake. But Guy, moved by the weariness of his men, decided to halt for the night. Hearing this, Raymond rode in from the front, crying, ''Ah, Lord God, the war is over. We are dead men. The kingdom is finished.'' On his advice, Guy set up his camp just beside Lubia, towards the slope of the Horns, where there was a well, and the whole army grouped itself around him, but the site was ill-chosen, for the well was dry. Saladin, waiting with all his men in the verdant valley below, could hardly restrain his joy. His opportunity had come at last. The crusaders passed the night in misery, listening to the prayers and songs that came from the Muslim tents below. A few soldiers broke out of the camp in a vain search for water, only to be killed by the enemy. To make their sufferings worse, the Muslims set fire to the dry that covered the hill, and hot smoke poured in over the camp. Under cover of the darkness, Saladin moved up his men. When the dawn broke on Saturday, the 4th of July, the Crusader army was encircled. Not a cat, says the chronicler, could have slipped through the Muslim net. The Muslim attack began soon after daybreak. The Christian infantry had only one thought, water. In a surging mass, they tried to break through down the slope towards the lake, gleaming far below. They were driven up a hillock, hemmed in by the flames and by the enemy. Many of them were slaughtered at once, many others were taken prisoner, and the sight of them as they lay wounded and swollen mouths was so painful that five of Raymond's knights went to the Muslim leaders to beg that they might all be slain to end their misery.' the horsemen on the hill fought with superb and desperate courage charge after charge of the muslim cavalry was driven back with losses but their own crusader numbers were dwindling enfeebled by thirst their strength began to fail them before it was too late at the king's request, Raymond led his knights in an attempt to burst through the Muslim lines. With all his men, he bore down on the regiments commanded by taki ed but Taki opened his ranks to let them through, and then closed up again behind them. They could not make their way back again to their comrades so miserably They rode from the battlefield away to Tripoli. A little later, Balian of Ebelin and Reynald of Sidon also broke their way out. They were the last to escape. There was no hope left now for the crusaders, but they still fought on, retiring up the hill to the horns of Hattin. The king's red tent was moved to the summit, and his knights gathered round him. Saladin's young son, Al-Afdal, was at his father's side, witnessing his first battle. Many years afterward— He paid tribute to the courage of the Franks. When the Frankish king had withdrawn to the hilltop, he said, his knights made a gallant charge and drove the Muslims back upon my father. I watched my father's dismay. He changed colour and pulled at his beard, then rushed forward, crying, "'Give the devil the lie!' So our men fell on the enemy who retreated up the hill." When I saw the crusaders flying, I cried out with glee, We have routed them. But they charged again and drove our men back again to where my father stood. Again he urged our men forward, and again they drove the enemy up the hill. Again I cried out, We have routed them. But my father turned to me and said, be quiet. We have not beaten them so long as that tent stands there. At that moment the tent was overturned. Then my father dismounted and bowed to the ground, giving thanks to Allah with tears of joy. The Bishop of Acre had been killed in the battle. The holy cross which he had borne into battle was in the hands of the infidel. Few of the knight's horses had survived. When the victors reached the hilltop, the knights themselves, the king amongst them, were lying on the ground, too weary to fight any more, with hardly the strength to hand their swords over in surrender. Their leaders were taken off to the tent that was erected on the battlefield for the Sultan. There Saladin received King Guy of Jerusalem, and his brother the Constable Amalric, Reynald of Chatillon, and his stepson Humphrey of Turon, the Grand Master of the Temple, the aged Marquis of Montferrat, the Lords of Jebaal and Botron, and many of the lesser barons of the kingdom. He greeted them graciously. He seated the king next to him, and seeing his thirst, handed him a goblet of rose water, iced with the snows of the mountain of Hermon. Guy drank from it, and handed it on to Reynaldo Chatillon, who was at his side. By the laws of Arab hospitality, to give food or drink to a captive meant that his life was safe. So Saladin said quickly to the interpreter, Tell the king that he gave that man drink, not I. He then turned on Reynaldo Chatillon, whose impious brigandage he could not forgive, and reminded him of his crimes, of his treachery, his blasphemy and his greed. When Reynaldo Chatillon answered truculently, Saladin himself took a sword and struck off his head. King Guy trembled, thinking that his turn would come next, but Saladin reassured him. "'A king does not kill a king,' he said but that man's perfidy and insolence went too far. He then gave orders that none of the barons was to be harmed, but that all were to be treated with courtesy and respect during their captivity. But he would not spare the knights of the military orders, save only the grandmaster of the temple, A band of fanatical Muslim Sufi warriors had joined his troops. To them he gave the task of slaying the Templar and Hospitaller prisoners. They performed it with relish. When this was done, he moved his army away from Hattin and the bodies on the battlefield were left to the jackals and the hyenas. The prisoners were sent to Damascus, where the barons were lodged in comfort, and the poorer folk were sold in the slave-market. So many were there that the price of a single prisoner fell to three dinars, and you could buy a whole healthy family, a man, his wife, his three sons, and his two daughters, for eighty dinars the lot. One Muslim even thought it a good bargain to exchange a prisoner for a pair of sandals. Crusaders had suffered disasters before. Their kings and princes had been captured before. But their captors then had only been petty lords out for some petty advantage. On the horns of Hattin, the greatest army that the Crusader kingdom had ever assembled was annihilated. The Holy Cross was lost, and the victor, Saladin, was lord of the whole Muslim world. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd be hugely grateful if you left any ratings on this podcast. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear about how Saladin followed up his victory at Hattin by recapturing Jerusalem. But could he expel the Crusaders completely from the Holy Land? Find out in the next episode.